All right, well, good morning. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Daniel. I'm the lead pastor here at Eden, and uh, I'm excited that you're here for this series, and this has been a good series so far. We've only had one message, and I've already gotten more feedback in that one message than I have ever gotten in any message that I have ever given in my entire life. And so uh, what we decided to do is uh, our worship leader, uh, Mark, came up with a great idea. He said, why don't we start a podcast so that you can address people's questions that they have in the message that they can't ask during the service. And so uh, we're starting a brand new podcast that's going to start as soon as we can figure it out, Monday. Um, But what we want to encourage you to do is if you have questions about something that I said or something that maybe didn't make sense, you wanted clarity about, we're going to create a little platform to continue the conversation. Our vision here at Eden is to... Uh, really create a place for people to explore life with Jesus in community. And so having an opportunity to carry on the conversation in the middle of the week is just another iteration of our way of of continuing to explore life with Jesus in community in that way. And so we want to encourage you, take questions. If you write the question on your Connect card and you turn the Connect card in at the end of the message, we'll kind of filter through the questions and then we'll try to answer them on the podcast. Now, let me just say this. If you have a critique and you don't put your name on the card, uh, we are not going to consider that as a question, okay? You have to put your name on so we can send you the information. But anyway, I'm just kidding. Um, But yeah, any feedback, we want it. We want to continue the conversation, so please be a part of that. But today, we are continuing in the series that we started last week called The Vow, and we're talking about marriage and relationships. And really, the reason why we're doing this is because if you've been married or you've been a part of an ongoing relationship, you realize how difficult creating a healthy environment in a consistent way is in those relationships. When I think about the first year and a half of my marriage, I think that was probably the most difficult time in our entire marriage. Um, It was such a, a confusing season. And what we found is that we got into our biggest arguments on the way to church. I don't know if you've ever experienced that with someone, but I don't know why that happens. Every Sunday morning, we got into like some big blowout argument for the first year and a half of our marriage. And it was such a difficult, difficult thing to try to understand. And I imagine that that is still where some of us are at. And one of the things I didn't mention last week that I wanted to make a point to mention this week is that just because I'm teaching on marriage and relationships, I just want you to know that I don't have it all figured out. Okay, I don't have a perfect marriage, and I am not a perfect standard of a husband. And this morning, I just wanted to give you one simple example of that truth. A few weeks ago, my wife, I, my wife and I were in Southern California at a conference, and, uh, and I was begging her to go out surfing with me, and she didn't really want to go. And, uh, and I begged her, and I begged her, and finally she said, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to go surfing with you. And so she got on the wetsuit, and we went out there. And the waves were like these amazing killer waves that were just like beautiful. They were like lush pillow top waves. And, uh, and so I take off and I forget about my wife, <laughs> that she doesn't know how to surf. And, uh, and so about five minutes into the surf session, I'm like, man, where is she? And I see her on the beach walking with the board back to the car. Um, So I want you to know that when I talk about some of these principles, I'm in process as well. I am learning how to honor my wife 
uh, in our marriage. Uh, but I also want you to know that, that really I, I have not arrived. And what we do in these series and any time that we're communicating about anything that we're teaching about the Bible is we really are trying to elevate God's values in this community, knowing that all of us are in pursuit of those values together, but never think that I have arrived at any of these things. I'm on the journey with all of you. So today we are continuing a series on marriage and relationships. And the mantra of this series is that great marriages or great relationships don't happen on accident, they happen on purpose. Great marriages, great relationships don't happen on accident, they happen on purpose. And so this series really is a conversation about how to have a great marriage or how to have a great relationship. But the way that we have a great marriage or a great relationship isn't necessarily by focusing on the relationship itself, but it is focusing on our relationship with God. And so as we continue in the series, I want to make sure that we don't fall into this trap where we think that our relationships are as one-dimensional as sort of a mathematical equation, right? You input a certain behavior, and you will always get a certain type of response. You'll get a certain type of output, i.e. relational health. I think if any of us have ever been a part of a relationship, with all of us have, we know that relationships are so much more dynamic and so much more complex than a one-dimensional system. And so over the course of this series, we're going to be talking about principles, and we're going to talk about values, and when we begin to apply God's values and God's principles to our relationships, we're going to think less about behavior, and we're going to think more about the way that we have framed marriage in our minds. And with the, I, I kind of hang out with a group of guys, and uh, we talk about spiritual things and stuff like that, and anyways, last week we uh, we decided that we were going to try to memorize this verse together, and I'm going to read it for you because uh, I don't have it fully memorized. I had it memorized last week. Um, but it's Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and this is what it says. It says, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you know God's will, so that you may know God's will. Today, my hope is that we're going to sort of renew our minds on the topic of marriage. And what I want to suggest over the next few weeks, over and over again, is this sort of radical shift about how many of us have framed marriage in our minds. And I want to think about it in these terms. I'm going to ask a few questions. That I wonder if marriage was more about our holiness than our happiness. I'll frame it this way. What if marriage wasn't about your happiness, but it was more about your holiness? What if marriage was more about what God could do in you and through you than what he wanted to do for you? What if marriage was God's lifelong incubator for spiritual growth and development? And I really think that these questions can be applied to any state that you're in, whether you're single or you're engaged or you're married. Asking these questions is sort of reframing the purpose of your relationships. Are they meant for the, someone else or are they meant for me? Was God intending to use me to, do, to bless someone in this relationship or was this relationship intended just for my blessing? So last week, as we began the conversation, we tried to lay the foundation of the series and we talked about the fact that all of us tend to enter into marriage with a box that we called hopes, dreams, and desires. And a lot of times, this box of hopes, dreams, and desires 
are filled with dreams about our preferred future, right? It is filled with things that we imagine marriage or certain relationships will produce in our life. Sometimes we enter into those relationships with the picture about what our financial future is going to look like. Sometimes we enter into relationships with our box full of images and dreams about how many kids we would have. Sometimes we enter into these relationships with an idea of our career paths or maybe parenting strategies or our plans for retirement or what we do on vacation or for leisure. But we enter into relationships oftentimes with these boxes filled with hopes and dreams and desires of what we think marriage is going to produce in our life. And none of these things are inherently bad or evil. But what I want us to point out and to recognize is that whenever we have filled our box with these things, maybe from past experiences, maybe from things that we've seen in our parents' life or the home life that we grew up in, is that this box is primarily filled with things that are all about you and they're all about me. So what's the problem? Why is this a problem at all? The problem is that sometimes we can turn these hopes, dreams, and desires into weighted expectations that we hand over to our spouse. And we say, you take this. This is now your responsibility to fulfill in my life. And that's when it becomes harmful to our marriage. We say, you go make it happen. We have dreams about what our future would look like, and we have created them without anyone else in mind. Maybe you've said, I've always assumed that you would stay home and take care of the kids while I went to work. Maybe you imagined having Christmas at your mother's house every single year. Or maybe you thought that your wife was going to have a meal prepared for you at 8 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and 5 o'clock every single day. And she was going to cook it just like your mom made the meal. Maybe you had dreams of a career. Maybe you wanted to go back to school. Maybe you wanted to live in a certain place. Maybe you wanted to drive a certain car. And so the way that you have dealt with that in your relationship is that you have embraced this idea of compromise, right? And we say, we will compromise. You'll take the kids to school on Monday, and I'll take the kids to school on Tuesday, and we'll flip the days back and forth. And you really go through your entire marriage relationship figuring out how you can compromise one thing after the other. And really, this isn't like a horrible way to engage in your marriage. But the problem, the unintended consequence with this idea of compromise is that it produces a culture of scorekeeping in your relationship. Now, you don't actually pull out a piece of paper and pen every time you kind of note what they do and what you do, but in your mind, you're sort of keeping mental track. Well, I took the kids this day, you took the kids the other day, or I took out the trash three times this week, and I vacuumed, and I did the dishes. And over and over again, you have built up this artillery of things that you have done in the marriage, and what happens is you're sort of operating like they keep score of what they've done, and you're keeping score of what you've done. And it begins to break down the trust in a marriage. Because you are always concerned about making sure that everything is equal. You want to make sure that they've done their part and you've already done your part. But what happens is you begin to break down the trust in the marriage. And every time that you break down trust, 
you diminish the gratitude, but you also diminish intimacy in a marriage. What have they done? What have I done? And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage that I hope will destroy the idea of scorekeeping in our relationships. And so today we're going to be in the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. And this is the part of the Bible that deals primarily with the life of Jesus and the development of the movement of Jesus in the first century. And we're going to be reading out of a letter that was written by a man named Paul. Paul was one of the early Christian leaders in the first century. And he's what I like to refer to as a spiritual entrepreneur because he was part of all of these startup churches all over the Mediterranean world during the first century, and he had really developed a strategy and a model of starting churches that was uh, unknown to that time. And so in this case, he's writing to a community of people that live in the city of Ephesus, which is one of the churches that he helped to start. And it's interesting that in this letter, really every part of this entire letter is tethered to the life of Jesus. The first half of the letter really has to do about how all of human history found its climax in the person of Jesus. And then the second part of the letter is all about how Jesus' life impacts every sphere of our life. And it's interesting to think that sometimes when we think about the Bible, it's easy to think that this 2,000-year-old book has nothing to say for my life in the modern context, 21st century Silicon Valley world. But what's interesting is you begin to unfold some of the pages of the Bible, you realize that it has so much to say about how we spend our time. It has so much to say about what we do with our resources. It has so much to say about how we engage in relationships. And for today's sake, it has a lot to do, has a lot to say about our marriages in our relationships. And so we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 27 this morning. And in this passage, Paul is going to describe God's pattern for a great marriage. And so the first thing that he does is he begins to address the wives. He gives direction about how wives can do their part to contribute to a great marriage. And this is what he said. He says, for wives, this means to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Now, I know that as we read this verse, does it feel a little bit uncomfortable? It kind of feels uncomfortable for me, and I just want to let you know that when you're standing up here, you can hear silence in a room. (laughs) And as I was reading that verse, I could hear the silence and sort of the tension build up, because this really goes against a lot of our modern sensitivities, right? This idea of equality in in every way between men and women. And actually, I love that statement. And I love the thought and the idea that we promote in nearly every facet of our culture in Silicon Valley. And I want to admit to you this morning that this verse is probably one of the most abused verses in the entire Bible. This has been a verse that in many contexts has been used to produce a spirit of male chauvinism, It has been used to devalue the role of women in society and in the household, and it has been used to limit the potential of an entire portion of our population. And so what I want to say this morning, 
I want you to know from the bottom of your heart that this verse was never intended to do that. That that was not the heart behind this verse. And part of the reason why we lean toward that direction or we kind of come to that conclusion is because of this word in this verse that says, wives submit to your husbands. But what you might find interesting to know is that the word submit is not even in that verse. The word in the, in the oldest Greek manuscripts that we have is not found in verse 22. And this is how we know this, because when you begin to study the actual translation of that verse, if we were to translate this verse verbatim, word for word, it says, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. It doesn't have the word submit. So the question then is, why is the word submit added to this verse in the Bible. And I'll tell you that it is there because verse 22 was built upon verse 21. And this is what verse 21 says. It says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we learned that submission was the assumed verse in verse 22 because it was built upon the verse in verse 21. So that was an inaccurate translation of verse 22, but this is what we also learn from verse 21. I, I, I hope this is not getting really confusing. Well, what we learn is that submission was not just for wives, but it was for husbands as well. That it, was just not, it wasn't just a call for wives to submit to their husbands, but it was actually a call for husbands to submit to their wives. It says both were asked to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so the distinction in this unique form of submission between men and women is really that God sort of gives people unique roles within the relationship, unique expressions of submission to one another. And so in this example, Paul is saying that wives were called to submit to their husband's example of moral and spiritual leadership. Wives were called to submit to their husbands Example of moral and spiritual leadership. And this was under the assumption that husbands were living in submission to Jesus. And so what this doesn't mean is that in a marriage relationship, when decisions are being made, that wives have no voice in the direction of their family. This does not mean that women have no authority in the direction of their home. This doesn't mean that women don't have a voice in what happens in a marriage relationship. But what it does mean is that wives are taking on their part to contribute to mutual submission in the relationship. It is a call to position your husband into a place of spiritual leadership in the household. And I know that this is probably a challenge for many people because typically in most relationships, the more spiritual person is usually the wife. And that is true in my marriage. My wife is significantly more in tune with her relationship with God than I am. And that is just sort of a typical way that things, that's not always true, but oftentimes it's true. And so what is difficult is to allow for the husband to lead spiritually. And sometimes we're in a situation where husbands are just not the spiritual leaders of the household. So what do we do? That's really a difficult circumstance to be in if we're reading this verse and we see that wives are supposed to submit to the spiritual leadership of their husband. The challenge for many wives then is to 
honor and respect the areas about their husband's life that they can respect, that they can lead, and in their hearts they follow Jesus. And so the bottom line challenge of this verse, or of these verses, is to challenge wives to allow for their husbands to take on that role of a spiritual and moral leader in the household, if possible, if possible. But as much as this is a challenge for wives to allow and to elevate their husbands to a place of leadership in the home, it is much, as much a call for men to embrace that leadership in their lives, to live the type of life that someone can follow. Now, I know that this first part of the conversation is perhaps a more difficult part, but we have to understand Paul's context. As he was writing this letter to his audience, there was nothing in this message so far that his audience would have had any sort of internal conflict about. Because Paul was speaking to a group of people who were in the first century ancient world. And so when we talk about wives submitting to their husbands, this wouldn't have been out of the ordinary. Because in the first century world, in many cases and in many cultures, wives were considered the property of their husbands. So wives didn't have the type of influence that we promote today. Wives didn't have the opportunity to speak in the home or to influence their husbands. They were viewed as property of their husbands. But I think what Paul's about to say next is the thing that would have caused the greatest amount of controversy. He directs these statements to the husband. In verse 25, he says, For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and cleaned and washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. And so Paul's description of the husband's side of submission is the description of the most radical form of personal surrender possible. In other words, what Paul is saying, he's saying, husbands, love your wives just like Jesus loved the church to lay down your life for her sake. Because that is what Jesus did. Jesus gave his life for a group of people who were distant from God to have connection to God, to have a relationship with God when they couldn't have it on their own. And so what Paul is saying to the husbands in this relationship and in a marriage relationship, he's saying give your lives to help your wife become everything that God created her to be. Give your life to helping your wife become everything that she was intended to be. He's saying, give your life to helping your wife fulfill the promises of her life. To give it away. And I love the picture of really these two statements that Paul makes to these two different groups, to the wives and to the husbands. And what we learn is that Christian marriage is really a submission competition. Have you guys ever played? Uh, that game at like a party, is it, it's not hula hoop. It's like a Hawaiian themed game. I'm so sorry. I had the, what is it? Limbo. Limbo. What is the goal of limbo? The goal of limbo, you don't have to answer that. The goal of limbo 
is to keep going lower and lower and lower and lower until you cannot go lower anymore. What Paul is saying is that limbo is a picture of the philosophy that we ought to have in our marriage toward our spouses. How low can you go? How low can you go? But really, I think that a better picture is this picture that we have the heart and we have the viewpoint that all we want to do in our marriage is to elevate our spouse. The wives were called to allow and to elevate their spouse to a place of spiritual leadership in the home. And the husband was really called to elevate the the goals of his spouse before his own goals. Like if a husband wants to succeed in marriage, it is him helping his wife succeed in her goals. That is success in marriage. And what I love about Jesus is that he never challenges us to do something that he himself hasn't already done. That Jesus never tells us to do something that his character hasn't already modeled for us. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible's in the entire Bible is Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 to 11. You're not going to have it on your screen, so I'm just going to read it to you. But this is a description of Paul explaining the attitude and the nature of submission that was present in the life of Jesus. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why on the front end of this conversation, Jesus said, submit to one another in reverence for Christ. Because that was the model and the template that Jesus gave to us for marriage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. The goal in marriage or any significant relationship is to begin elevating the status of the other person. And there is a sense where we need to become convinced that we think our spouse or our significant other owes us nothing, but we feel like we owe them everything. And that's really a challenge to do. Because I think that the natural tendency for us in marriage or relationships is to be quick to identify the flaws of other people. Right? It is so easy to have that list of shortcomings. Remember you did this last time. Remember this is how you acted last time. Remember this is what you said. You always do this. And that slowly begins to clutter the way that we see this person that we once valued so much. And so the way that we begin to see and long to even elevate our spouse is by changing the way that we see our spouse. Because if you see your spouse as a failure, you're going to treat them like a failure. You're going to assume the worst of them every single time. But if you see your spouse in light of their victories, you are going to see them as much of a hero as you can. 
And this is what a great marriage looks like. And this is what a great marriage is built upon. This philosophy of elevating your spouse. Elevating someone else without merit. Elevating someone else when they did not earn the right to be elevated themselves. And oddly enough, this is exactly what the gospel does for us. That in our brokenness, in our weakness, in our flaws, Jesus came to elevate our status when we could never elevate it on our own. Jesus came to bring us into a place that we could never bring ourselves. He came to provide for us a cleansing of our life that we could never experience on our own without his unconditional love for us. And that is why Paul, in the book of Ephesians, says that Jesus impacts every part of your life. Because when we embrace the philosophy of the gospel, we know that we don't just get what we earn, but we get what we did not earn. That we don't just give when people deserve it, but we give because we have a model of love that goes beyond our own capacity to love. And that is what Jesus does in every single sphere of our life. He takes us further than we could ever go on our own. When we talk about this idea of compromise, that is the best economical, mathematical way that we could logically come to to engage in a marriage or in a relationship. You do this for me, I'll do it for you, and we'll be equal. But that wasn't the way that Jesus operated in his relationship with us. He said, you've done nothing for me, but I want to do everything for you. And that's the truth. That we have done nothing to earn the life and the peace that is offered in Jesus Christ. I love this quote by a pastor in New York City. His name is Tim Keller. He says, In sharp contrast with our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. And that means that love is more fundamentally action than emotion. But in talking this way, there's a danger of falling into the opposite error that characterized many ancient and traditional societies. It is possible to see marriage as merely a social contract, a way of doing your duty to family, tribe, and society. Traditional societies made the family the ultimate value in life, and so marriage was a mere transaction that helped your family's interests. By contrast, contemporary Western societies make the individual's happiness the ultimate value. And so marriage becomes primarily an experience of romantic fulfillment. But the Bible sees God as the supreme good, not the individual or the family. And that gives us a view of marriage that intimately unites feelings and duty, passion and promise. It is a coming together, a joining together of both the commitment that we make to one another, but also the passion and love that we have. And that is the gospel. That is the picture that Jesus set for us and for marriage. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this group. I thank you that you have given us a perfect and beautiful model of how we can engage in our relationships, our most important relationships. And God, it is never easy. 
It is always harmful. It is always harmful to our own vision and our goals for our life. But God, you have shown us a better way. You've shown us that through submission and through sacrifice and the giving of our lives to one another, that marriage could be more than we ever dreamed or imagined. God, I know that there are hurts and that there are scars in the room today. I know that all of us have walked into this room with, a, with an emotional limp from past experiences. And I love that your word teaches us, God, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That in humility, God, we all approach the cross laying down our failures and our past and our guilt and our shame and our hurt and our worry and our anxiety. And you've asked us to give them to you. To give it away. You've reminded us over and over again that we are not responsible for bearing those burdens anymore. But we are free in you. Free to live the life that you have called us to a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray this morning that you would help us to reframe our picture of any relationship that we have or of any marriage that we enter into. God, that you would help us to see that it may be the primary purpose of marriage is that you want to form in us the character that outside of marriage, perhaps we could never know. God, I also know that marriage does not fill us. Marriage doesn't complete us. Marriage doesn't make us whole. But it is you. It is a relationship with you that fills our hearts with the things that we desire most. And I pray today that, God, if there is anyone that has never made a decision to enter into that peace, to enter into that relationship, that they would do so today. And your word says all that we have to do is to receive the free gift that came in the form of your son, Jesus Christ, and to embrace that truth, to turn from the old life, and to begin walking with you. And in that moment, in that moment where we hand you our trust and our heart, you promise to reform our heart. God, we thank you. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.